Hello and welcome to the Racial Equality Podcast with DBM Advocate. Today we're going to be speaking to Dr. Jason Arday. I'm Josephina Wehmer. I'm joined by Jasmine and Tyler as well. So Jason, thank you for being with us today. Um, do you want to just tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what you do? Thank you, Josephine, Tara and Jasmine. It's so good to um, be here and just thank you for the amazing work that you're doing. Um, so my name is um, Jason Arde. Um, I am an associate professor in sociology at Durham University in the Department of Sociology. And I'm also the deputy executive dean for people and culture. And um, a lot of my work has been around kind of race, uh, social justice and education. Um, and I've worked as a consultant uh, for Parliament, um, so the Commons and the House of Lords, um, and I've really done um, a lot of work in Welsh Government as well. I've done a lot of work over the years to try and kind of mobilise um, the advancement, mobilise or advance kind of the importance of black British history within our kind of national curricula, um, and was kind of really was fortunate to be successful in being able to develop um, a race um, equity um, action plan for Welsh Government, um, which now means that they have black history as part of their curriculum in Wales. So hopefully we'll be able to marry that across um, the UK, um, neighbouring parts of the UK. So, for example, Scotland, Ireland, and I think England is a more challenging um, dynamic, but I, I think that there's potential for it to be done. Like, what does the term allyship really mean? Like, um, what can people, like, what can people do in order to be an ally and not someone who is basically just letting things happen around them and not doing anything to kind of intervene? That's a great question, Tara. I think in terms of allyship, the thing that um, I think, I mean, look, that that particular term has kind of reinvented itself over the last 14, 15 months. Um, and I guess the problem with allyship previously was that there was this temporary engagement, which was seasonal. You know, I'll, I'll engage in anti-racism in winter, maybe a little bit of spring, but you know what? I'm really tired. I'm really mentally and emotionally tired. I'll give myself all, you know, the summer and autumn off and then get back on it in, in winter. Now, when you're a black person or a person of colour, you don't have the luxury of taking time off. You, you encounter racism through its, through its many insecting variables every day. And so for me, what allyship would look like now is staying the distance, you know, um, and doing something that I don't always think comes naturally to white people, which is to decenter themselves from um, a context. And what I mean is, is that it's about presenting a platform for black and people's voice, black people's voices to be front and centre, ensuring that they're not active bystanders, that they're active disruptors in that process. Um, They are actively looking to mobilise the voices of black and ethnic minority people and providing that solidarity when it's most needed. Because I think um, solidarity in the aftermath of a racist episode is entirely useless and redundant. Um, And I think that's what allyship looks like. Now, to do that, that means that white people have to be willing to disrupt the privilege that they actually benefit from. It also means that um, there needs to be a sense of thinking around 
you know, who would be willing to give up their privilege? You know, um, and is it a question of giving up privilege or is it a question of, you know, you, you know, if you look at the work of Professor Paul Miller, his work on white sanction, using your privilege to mobilize issues of race. Um, but then does it drift into white saviordom? You know, so there's all of these kind of um, intersecting dichotomies with this. But fundamentally, if I was to kind of simplify it, which I think a lot of these things can be overcomplicated, and I think it's about simplifying it. It's about being in the, for want of a better term, the white heat of battle, or racist, a racist battle, and a white person coming in and taking the shot for you. You know, and, and, I, and I think white people don't don't they don't they don't actively always disrupt racism when they see it. You know, in the after the event, it's absolutely redundant. It's useless that that the person of color who is in the firing line has not only taken that racialized bullet, they've internalized it and it's and it will be working its psychological damage. That bullet will be spiraling inside of them, creating, a, you know, um a range of catastrophes, you know, metaphorically and psychologically speaking. Um, so it's really important for white people to be in that position, to take the bullet and to give black and ethnic minority people the chance to, you know, really take some ownership in that. And, you know, beyond that as well, when the kind of retaliatory and punitive actions of whiteness come into play, white people need to be there back again on the front line with black people. Um, and I think minority people, and I think that's really, really important. That's what allyship um, looks like for me, and also engaging in a process of educating other white people, so that the labour of that education doesn't always fall in the lap of black and ethnic minority people. I mean, it's it's a tangled web we weave because it's very hard to stay abreast of racism and what allyship may mean in response to the ever-changing kind of racisms we face on a daily basis. But that's that's kind of where we are. I mean, we could have this conversation in a year and our shit might resemble something completely different. This time last year, a lot of it was buying books and white people educating themselves around racism as, as an act of solidarity, an act of allyship. Now, when we look at it a year on, it's more than that. You know, it's it's this active participation in disrupting racism. So, you know, in a year's time, um, you know, only smarties have the answer. Who knows what that um, <laughs> what that might look like? Yeah. There are a lot more people that, that tend to be a lot more set in their ways and have like a lot more deeply rooted beliefs. Do you think there's any sort of like entry points to kind of garner these conversations so they're not as awkward as they could be? Yeah, Tara, I, th- I think it's, it's a dialogue. It's a dialogue. And I think that um, and people of colour have always been able to garner this. Forgiveness and patience, I think, are the best branches that we can use to kind of really grow um, the kind of conversations that we want. Um, and, yeah, you could make an argument, a very good one, that why should black and ethnic minority people continue to have to be patient, you know, towards white fragility and these conversations. But I think um, these conversations are conduit to providing people with the education to make informed choices. And so we have to continue to utilise these conversations, talking with people, not at people, as a means to getting them to understand why this is important historically, why it's important in the present and why it will be in present in our future in terms of the high, the racial hybridity of the world that we now live in.
you know, why it's important for people to understand that, to be able to navigate a multicultural, multi-ethnic society, global society at that.